I'm Wilson Lai. I'm Benjamin Yap. I'm Eli Sands. And I'm Andrew Ahn. You're listening to Deep Cut. Deep Cut, we compare a director's most popular film with a personal favorite chosen by one of us. We also discuss a director's life and career to bring in context that helps us view their movies as they may want us to. Welcome to a very, very special episode of Deep Cut, where we welcome back an esteemed guest of the show, director Andrew Ahn. Ahn's feature debut, Spa Night, premiered at the 2016 Sundance Film Festival, and told the story of a first-generation Korean-American boy who's coming to terms with his sexuality as he takes a job at a Koreatown spa. His second feature, Driveways, from 2019, is about a summertime friendship that develops between a boy whose aunt has just passed away and the Korean War veteran who lives next door to his aunt. If you haven't listened to our previous episode with Andrew, where we break down Jonathan Glazer's enigmatic birth, do check it out. It is one of my favorites. And we are also going to be doing something very special and very new in our episode today. Yes, we are. We're excited and honored to be previewing Andrew's new film, Fire Island, for everyone. Set in the iconic Pines, Andrew on's Fire Island is an unapologetic modern-day rom-com showcasing a diverse, multicultural examination of queerness and romance. Inspired by the timeless pursuits from Jane Austen's classic Pride and Prejudice, the story centers around two best friends, played by Joel Kim Booster and Bowen Yang, who set out to have a legendary summer adventure with the help of Cheap Rosé and their cadre (laughs) of eclectic friends. Fire Island comes out on June 3rd on Hulu. Please welcome back to the podcast, Andrew. Hi, everyone. (laughs) Hi. (laughs) Thanks for having me again. I'm excited to chat with you all. Thank you so much for joining us. Yes, thank you, Andrew, for joining us. And we're so glad to have you back again. And not only are we talking about your film today, you've also picked a very appropriate film to pair, like the cheap rosé to Fire Island, (laughs) with our discussion (laughs) of your film. (laughs) Maybe cheap rosé is not good. (laughs) (laughs) It just came to mind when you said that just now in in the description. But it's a great pairing to your film, a kind of Gaijin American deep cut, Alice Wu's 2004 debut feature, Saving Face, which is a film set in New York City about a Taiwanese American lesbian played by Michelle Druzik and her traditionalist mother played by Joan Chen of Twin Peaks fame, who are both reluctant to go public with their secret loves that clash against cultural expectations. So Saving Face was Alice Wu's debut feature that she made after leaving her job at Microsoft, and it was inspired by her own relationship with her mother. Wu didn't make another feature film till 2020 when she wrote and directed the half of it for, insert, uh, I don't know, competitor streaming platform here. (laughs) So (laughs) Andrew, why did you decide to pick Saving Face as your deep cut pick? Yeah, you know, um, thinking about, you know, the legacy of queer, you know, cinema that exists, I wanted to talk about another queer Asian American film. And Saving Face really stands out as a rom-com, as a 
coming of age story, you know, understanding one's identity. And I think a lot of people discovered Alice because of the half of it. And I'm curious to know how many people have actually seen her first film, you know? And so I'm I'm happy to, you know, shed a little light on it and point people toward it if they enjoyed the half of it. Like, I definitely think you should check out Saving Face. Yeah, I feel like both Fire Island and Saving Face are sort of, in my opinion, pitch-perfect romantic comedies. And I think Agreed. I really appreciate both films because I think, I feel like queer films always tend to, like, fall into this, like, sad gaze or kill your gaze trope of, like, making movies about heartbreak and loss and i think both films are able to really like nicely like sidestep that and present joyous visions of queer people in love and yeah thank you for that andrew (laughs) (laughs) no of course i mean it's it's interesting re-watching saving face you know i think both alice's film and my film like we are really embracing the rom-com you know we're not afraid of the genre nor are we condescending to it at the same time especially saving face it is very dramatic you know like there is a lot of pathos in there and and the characters are wrestling with a lot but i i think that is part of the genre you know like rom-coms are weirdly very dramatic mm-hmm. what was it like for you like i mean your first two feature films are more dramatic features right what was that like kind of moving into romantic comedy? Was that something that felt natural for you? Or like, did you have to switch gears? Did you have to look at different films like Saving Face to kind of prepare yourself to tackle Fire Island? Yeah, you know, um, I would not have like thought that I would make a rom-com. Like I just, mm-hmm. you know, it, it wasn't something that I was like planning to do at the beginning of my career or felt like was going to be a part of my body of work. But I received the script for Fire Island, and I loved how it focused on this friendship between two queer Asian Americans. And that felt really special to me. There was something about that that I haven't explored in my own work. You know, Spa Night is a very lonely queer Asian American (laughs) character. Yeah. (laughs) And queer Asian American friendship is such a big part of my life that I saw this script that reflected a lot of my own experiences. And so even though the genre was a rom-com, the thematics, you know, and the core of the story felt very familiar to me. And so it became a bit of a, you know, kind of a challenge. Like I was excited to like try a different genre and see what it felt like. You know, comedy, I've done a little bit of comedic work in my television directing. Comedy is really hard. It's super, super hard. It's a very precise skill Mm -hmm. because you're trying to surprise an audience with every joke. Right. And surprising someone takes a lot of effort. And so, like, I found it's the word choice in the screenplay. It's the like reaction in the performance it's the way that you say like a single word or a syllable within a word Mm -hmm. it's a few frames here or there in the edit like it's such a precise skill 
you know, and the difference between what, like a joke that lands and a joke that doesn't land can be so minuscule hmm. that like, I was really kind of obsessed with the, the task, you know? And so I really wanted to to learn about it. I don't know if I'm going to do it that often in my career. <laughs> it's hard. It's really, really hard. And it's difficult to make it look easy. Yeah. You know, I was inspired by filmmakers like Alice, you know, with Saving Face. I was really interested in those early Ang Lee comedies, like The Wedding Banquet yeah. and Eat, Drink, mm. Man, Woman, which I think balance humor and heart so beautifully there's something about the comedy genre that like i think a lot of people can kind of look down on but i think is actually a really fascinating difficult uh genre to live in one of the ways that you surprise the audience i felt from watching fire island was through your use of camera movement in particular pans so I'm thinking of a couple of different moments. One at the party at Charlie's house, who's the love interest of Howie played by Bowen Yang. When Noah played by Joel Kim Booster is saying, don't let them look down on you. And then boom, the camera pans right as Luke <laughs> rushes past them, their friend, to throw up into a vase. <laughs> yeah. And it feels like an expansion of the visual and camera style that you've had in your other work. So I wanted to ask you about how you built out the camera lexicon in Fire Island and how you made those choices of when to make a joke out of the camera movement. Yeah, you know, um, I am always looking for a way to visualize the, the moments, the storytelling. Each scene, I'm trying to find a way to make it cinematic and interesting. Mm-hmm. And with comedy, you know, sometimes it it really relies on the camera work, you know, the way that it's written. You know, there's this moment in the film where they're all on the pier, all the characters, and Howie gets invited to the house party by Charlie. Oh. And then <laughs> it's the wide know, shot. It's the wide shot. And, you know, that was like, I don't know how to play that joke in coverage, actually, you know, like, it's mm. not as effective if you break it up into mediums and close ups. It's like, it is more effective as a wide shot. And that was something that my cinematographer, Felipe Vardere, had suggested. And it made so much sense for how it was scripted, even if it wasn't scripted as like, it plays in a wide shot like that. It just, it felt natural. It felt right. And I think there's a lot of of humor in like what you see or what you don't see in how you're framing and what you're moving to. It's it's a really, uh, again, like such a, a precise skill, you know, and, and we tried a bunch of things on set. And then, of course, in the edit to just really get as much out of the humor. I'll say like oddly especially with an ensemble like this, sometimes when we move the camera less, you know, when we cut less, it was funnier because you saw mm -hmm. more of the people, you saw reactions. Yeah. And the ensemble is so good mm -hmm. that we relied on it. You know, like we felt like it gave it that sense of 
family. Yeah. Mm. And even if it wasn't necessarily like what you might expect from a comedy, I think that the humor worked better sometimes just like, yeah, like letting things play out, letting things, letting things hold. And that's maybe a little bit my indie film background, but yeah, I, I'm very gratified by those moments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely pays off. And I wanted to ask, what was it like working with such a big ensemble cast compared to your previous two features? You really are working with a lot more people who are in many scenes of the film. Was it hard to rein everyone in and keep everyone on task or was it was it easy for you? Yeah, I mean, to a certain extent, I didn't want to rein people in, you know, because so much of the film is about family dynamics and and seeing a very organic friendship between all the characters. And so I I tried to keep a very, you know, loose and fun set. Obviously, there were moments when we needed to like get the shot before the sun goes down. <laughs> but I think the the cast understood like, oh, like we need to get the shot. <laughs> but other times I, you know, let them play and kept the camera rolling and was very gentle in my direction. I purposefully had a very light hand in my directing on this movie. And that's kind of my MO in general. I, I really hate like puppeting actors. I think it leads to to bad performance. Even if I envision a moment or a performance of a moment a certain way, like if an actor gives me something different, I'm very wary of trying to force them to something that they're not naturally coming to themselves. And instead, mm-hmm. I I try and find the most compelling or engaging version of the performance that they're giving, you know, and Mm. and want to lead them down a path that they're already kind of walking down. And so I I had a lot of fun with the ensemble. Like I could see that they were having so much fun with each other. Like I didn't want to get in the way of that. Mm. And, you know, was it difficult sometimes like definitely like (laughs) as a director i want to give myself to everybody all the time and Mm. you you can't do that with an ensemble but you know this cast is so generous joel kim booster bowen yang margaret cho conrad rickamora you know they were all so game for what this was that like i never had to worry that like I was going to lose them because they felt like they weren't getting enough attention, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I definitely had to prioritize certain moments for certain characters, but it was always a a really generous set. I think it really shows in the performances, like the the family unit feels so strong and genuine and real. And I read that you and the main cast just lived in a house on Fire Island what was that like? Like, did that help you <laughs> in terms of like building the family unit and as a director embedding yourself with the ensemble behind the scenes and then like trying to cultivate a certain kind of family unit, whether it's behind the scenes and hoping that it shows up on camera? That you know, that was my favorite part of the shoot was <laughs> to live with the cast, you know, uh-huh. on the island. You know, we were in this big kind of bed and breakfast on the island and it was such an intimate environment. You know, I 
lived next door to Margaret, and on the other oh side of me God. was was Tomas Matos, who plays Keegan, and and I just loved, you know, stepping outside of my room, you know, onto the pool deck and seeing Margaret like gifting Tomas like a bustier to try on and you know like trading clothes and the actors were like chilling by the pool grabbing drinks you know I remember at one point my room it shared an air vent with Joel's room and I could hear Joel and the rest of the cast watching Real Housewives of Beverly Hills and I just thought it was like so adorable like they were like giggling and it reminded me of, you know, it's the Bennett house. It's, yeah. you know, it's Pride and Prejudice. And, you know, the other film that I was thinking about talking about today, which might have been too obvious, was Pride and Prejudice, the Joe Wright <laughs> film, <laughs> which I love. It's one of my favorite movies. And, you know, there are these really beautiful shots of the camera roving from window to window, checking in on each sister. And, you know, that's what it felt like uh, on the island. Mm. And I tried to bring as much of that energy, you know, from the house onto set. And obviously, like, you know, we had to say the words and, you know, we had to get through the, the plot. But, you know, as much as possible, I was trying to allow the actors to feel like they could bring a part of themselves and bring a part of their relationships, you know, to the film. Mm. I have to admit that I've not read Pride and Prejudice and I have not seen the Joe Wright film. <laughs> so it is, yeah, it is quite, it is quite shocking. Wilson, me neither. <laughs> Both. <laughs> oh no. Ben. Oh no. <laughs> me neither. <laughs> but I, I do know or like understand the, the Bennett sisters dynamic and, also get a sense of like the Elizabeth Bennett and Mr. Darcy relationship. And I think that my idea of it, you transferred it very well into, or you and Joel transferred it very well into the script of this film. How was it like working with Joel on the script and also like knowing that you were working on an adaptation of a Jane Austen novel? What was that like? Yeah. Um, you know, I really love the story of Pride and Prejudice and I've, read the novel i've watched the bbc adaptation mm -hmm. with jennifer ely and then the joe wright film adaptation with Keira knightley there's something about the story that i just find so satisfying and i think it's because there's something very human about what austin is observing where you know, we all make assumptions, you know, as soon as we see someone, there's a lot of judgment that happens very quickly. And I think what Austin is trying to offer to the reader is that sometimes these assumptions can prevent you from making a very profound connection. Mm -hmm. And I, I think what Joel did in adapting Pride and Prejudice to Fire Island is so smart because I think queer people especially are very good at judging people. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yes, we're very good at that. And I actually think that it's part of our queer experience that like as 
you know, young people, we're trying to figure out like, who's going to be cool with us being queer, you know, like, I think it's a survival technique, you know, like, we don't want to get beat up, we don't want to get into an awkward situation. So we are very good at assessing whether someone is our people. And so I, I really love that Joel really saw this adaptation through and found ways to take what was happening in Regency era society and bring it to queer culture on Fire Island. The collaborative experience was really intense. Joel and I, we had so much work to do in a very short amount of time. I'll fully admit that I was not the original director. And it's out there in the world, actually. The very first version of Fire Island was a Quibi show called Trip. (laughs) (laughs) Hence the excellent Quibi joke. Exactly. Thank you. Thank you. And they had a different director attached. And I I had actually interviewed for it back when it was a Quibi show. And I didn't get it. I was was one of the, the final few. But, you know, my joke is that. Jeffrey Katzenberg didn't think I was funny enough. <laughs> you know, when when it got turned into a Searchlight movie and they had to search for another director, I got it that time and I felt very validated and gratified. Mm. But they brought me on real late. There was a very narrow window of time that we could shoot the movie because it had to be shot when it was warm out. Right. But then also... We couldn't be on the island during peak tourism season. Right. And then Bo and Yang had to go to Saturday Night Live again in the fall. So we had a very, very narrow window of time that was coming up very quickly. And so Joel and I worked our butts off, you know, and at the same time, Joel is preparing as an actor, Mm -hmm. which is a whole nother process. Right. And so we had a lot of discussions. We went through the script page by page. There are certain remnants of the Quibi formatting (laughs) that we had to excise so that it felt like a cohesive movie and not like 12 chapters of, you know, a show. But, you know, we very quickly understood each other's priorities. And for me as a director... I knew that this was Joel's baby. And so the the dynamic was always clear. I was never going to take the movie away and make it fully mine. You know, it was always going to be a collaboration. And so not having an ego about it made it easy for me. I think if this were like closer to like my own experience and it was something that I felt really, you know, possessive of, that would have been different. But I saw Joel's passion for this story and I wanted to facilitate that. That's a great answer. <laughs> Your questions are very um, multi-part and I'm trying to like hit each one. Um, but yeah. You talked about the, the kind of short time frame, but this is also your first studio film, like a big studio film. Like what was that transition like, like going from doing smaller indies to something bigger with a bigger cast executive big locations marketing short yeah. time frame studio oversight short maybe. turnaround all that <laughs> no totally i mean 
more money, more problems, you know, (laughs) it's tough. It's really tough. You know, I think we had to make this as a bigger budget film, the way that the script was written, the set pieces beyond the fairy, right? Like we couldn't steal a fairy shot. We had to be able to, to pay for the fairy. We had to own the fairy for, you know, a day or two. And so you know, there's definitely a version of Fire Island or a movie set on Fire Island that is done very indie and very guerrilla, you know, but it's a very different story and it has a very different narrative strategy, you know. It would look and feel more like Spawnite than it would a Fire Island rom-com, right? And so I never felt annoyed by it. Like, I knew that this had to be made by a place like Searchlight. You know, and we needed the resources in order to do this in a way that pays people a livable wage, you know? Yeah. And I think it's really important as I grow in my career that I don't inconvenience people, you know, to like volunteer their time or their energy, (laughs) because I think I'm at this point in my career where I can advocate for people to, you know, get paid what they deserve. And so, you know, paying a crew of you know a hundred plus people it's like that it's an expensive movie and you need to work with a company that has deep pockets you know Mm -hmm. so i i fully recognized it i fully understood it you know that said it is a lot of work to deal with a studio and i had to recognize very early on that they have their priorities and they are fully allowed to have those priorities in the same way that I'm allowed to have my priorities as a director. Of course, they're trying to make it faster, funnier, more accessible. And I'm trying to hold on to great storytelling, cinematic vision, heart, you know, emotion. Like these are things that I really, you know, care about. And sometimes those priorities overlap. And sometimes they don't. And then when they don't, it is a negotiation. And, you know, there are things in the movie that I wish were a little different. There are scenes in the movie that I miss that got cut out of the film. I don't know if anybody's going to be demanding the on cut, um, you know, but we will. (laughs) But it is a thing that I had to understand, you know, it's like they paid for this. They're paying me like, you know, it's a little bit the situation. It's the circumstances. Mm-hmm. You know, that said, I'm I'm very proud of the film. And, and I think it's something that the studio is also very proud of. And I think that that means something to me. But yeah, you know, I fought for certain things that I did get to keep and I'm very gratified by them. It's it's a trick. But, you know, it's very odd for me in this point in my career where I realized that I don't know if I'll ever make another movie like Spawnite, where I had so much control of the creative. I might not Hmm. have had control of the scope of the film. Like, I might not have had all the resources that I wanted. But with what I had, I could make it, you know, the way that I wanted to. So I had Final Cut on Spawnite. And... I think I'll be fighting to get final cut with every movie for the rest of my career. And maybe I'll get it again if I ever win an Oscar. I don't know. But I was hoping. <laughs> yeah. 
but yeah, it's it's a very weird process, and and I don't think it's right for every movie that I'm going to make in the future. Mm. Like, I yeah. don't think that I would abandon independent filmmaking because I think that it's important for certain types of stories. But reading Joel's script, yeah, like there's no way that that could have been made as an independent, you know, like little movie in the way that mm-hmm. I had made Spawnite or Driveways. Here's a pivot. <laughs> yeah. Since Fire Island is this big kind of glitzy studio rom- romantic comedy, like when you watch a small indie romantic comedy like Saving Face, is there anything that you're thinking about the creation of that? Because I know Alice Wu had to fight for Final Cut for this. And it was her debut feature, and she really fought strongly to have it made her way. And like when you watch it after making something like Fire Island, like do you see the difference between the two? And like, do you see things in Saving Face that you are almost maybe envious of that you couldn't have done in something like Fire Island? And of course, they're they're very different romantic comedies in terms of like subject and context. You know, Fire Island and Saving Face, it's so funny. I thought that they were like more similar in some ways. Uh, and then I rewatched Saving Face and I was like, oh, wow, it's like really doing its own thing, you know? <laughs> and again, I, as I mentioned earlier, it's so much more dramatic than I remembered. I was actually surprised at how big it felt, actually, Saving Face. Mm. You know, it's not, a, it's not the tiniest of indies. Definitely had resources and they tried to show off like parts of the city in a really, you know, cinematic way. But I can tell like there are certain elements of it that are indicative of a lower budget. Like I think it's really funny that you never see Lin Chen dance. (laughs) (laughs) Like she's a big dancer and like you see her coming out of a theater, but that's like the extent of it. And I think if it were a bigger budget movie, you would have had a dance sequence, you know, like that would, that would have been a part of the story, you know, that said, like, I think Alice does such a beautiful job of developing their relationship. Mm -hmm. You know, that relationship is really satisfying and the performances from Lynn and Michelle are really beautiful and sensitive. I think that if, Saving Face were a studio film, there might have been more hijinks, you know, like there might have been less opportunity to just sit and, you know, witness them falling in love and developing their relationship. I also really love the Joan Chen storyline. Oh, it's so good. (laughs) It is, I think, the kind of heart of the movie. And Joan Chen is so good. I love her in this movie. Agreed. She is surprisingly funny and then just can do so much with so little. I I think there's something about her storyline that under different circumstances, I think would have been, you know, more sensationalized in a film, but Alice really makes it so human. Mm -hmm. And I think that that, again, is, is something that when you have a lower budget, that's what you rely on. It's, it's kind of the human story. It's the emotions. And that for me is always going to be the most satisfying element of a movie and was what I had to really preserve and fight for, you know, with Fire Island. I think about like watching these back to back was really interesting because in Fire Island, there's this joke about romantic comedy types of stories. Like there's a bit of a metatextual thing. And then there's this joke about how you have these big 
airport scene. Oh, the pre 9-11. Yeah, the pre 9-11 yeah. airport scene. You <laughs> have this big airport scene in Saving Face, which I mean, I learned that they shot in a kind of defunct airport terminal, which yeah. looks amazing. It's beautiful. And there were so many interesting kind of parallels looking at it and thinking about Prime Prejudice and how it kind of creates this kind of template for what romantic comedies are like. In Fire Island, you have that kind of friend as mentor to the other friend's dating life. But then with Saving Face, both mother and daughter are kind of mentors to the other's romantic kind of entanglements. And I think that like really comes through when you watch these romantic comedies. And I have not been watching romantic comedies for the longest of times. And I kind of miss... It's such a nice comfort watch watching something like Fire Island and Saving Face having that kind of final coming together moments, having these last ditch attempts. It's so nice to watch. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that the genre is fascinating. And, you know, they don't always age well. Like, I rewatched You've Got Mail, and, you know, it's definitely a little gaslighty, yeah. you know. <laughs> and obviously that's based on the film shop around the corner. Um, but I rewatched. Uh, my best friend's wedding. And I think there's something about rom-coms that, you know, they're, they're trying to make something that's really difficult, accessible and palatable. Mm -hmm. I think it's a very different type of filmmaking than, you know, what I was exploring with in Spawnite, which is actually kind of more to challenge, you know, but at the same time, like, I don't think that that's any less worthy or easier. Like, I think trying to make something accessible is very hard. You know, mm -hmm. it's very, very hard because I think you can also start to go too far and then it starts to feel like you're like pandering or spoon feeding to an audience and then, you know, an audience reacts to that. So there's something about the genre that I find really tricky. And I think really good ones are hard to find. And I think there are a lot of efforts to pump them out by a studio. But I think it's mm -hmm. very clear when something, you know, just doesn't have the quality to kind of stand the test of time. The question of accessibility to an audience takes on a different sort of skew for me with Fire Island, where... I think very carefully, it's not pandering to a straight audience or over explaining the culture of Fire Island. Are there moments in the script or on set that felt particularly important to you in maintaining that? The gayness. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Wilson. Yeah, I mean, I remember talking to Joel a lot about, about prep. Mm -hmm. and, and we both felt very strongly that you know we didn't want to explain it you know mm -hmm. we we didn't mm -hmm. want to give a a definition and i think it was very clear to us that we wanted to make this for queer people you know and there's still a priority of accessibility but we also felt that it's a question to like well who are you being accessible to and then also like if some people don't understand the details, is that okay? You know? Mm -hmm. And we had it pretty clear for ourselves. You know, it's like, we want to make this for queer people. Even more specifically, we wanted to make it for queer Asian Americans. And then for me, I had an even 
more specific goal, which is like I was making this for Joel Kim Booster. Oh. <laughs> and that, you know, that really was kind of my guiding light. We definitely had notes about explaining certain things. You know, at one point, uh, one of our characters mentions that there's an after Kiki. <laughs> and there was a note that we should explain that an after Kiki is an after party. You know, like a Kiki is a party. And yeah. I just didn't think that that was necessary and that if someone doesn't know what a kiki is that they would by context figure out what it is you know right yeah and really what we wanted to do was just have it feel as authentic to a point of view as possible you know mm -hmm. like as much as studio films can feel like kind of filmmaking by committee like we wanted to make this feel like it had a real point of view and it was mm -hmm. Joel's point of view and it was my point of view. We wanted to focus on that. And I think that that's what makes the most successful movies, you know, are, yeah. are films that have a point of view. I think audiences can tell when something doesn't have authorship. Mm. And I think that those movies are often very forgettable. But when something has a really strong point of view, regardless of how artsy fartsy inaccessible <laughs> it is or how commercial it is if it has a point of view like there's something about that that feels really satisfying yeah mm. and i think it's not just in the jokes of the film right it's in the core of the story i think the main conflict being like toxic gays right like you have the throwaway line about the the grinder description no fats no femmes no asians and i think that that split between our main family and the Will and Charlie group, even though that is something so like integral to like the gay experience or the gay Asian experience, I think it translates very well. I think people like straight people or like other people outside of the community get that. Same with, I feel like the intergenerational trauma conflict that, Wu plays with in Saving Face. Yeah, 100%. I think, you know, watching Saving Face, you know, it's very culturally specific. It's Taiwanese American. It's set in, you know, New York City, Flushing at a certain time. Like <laughs> that community center. Like I've, I've never been a part of something like that, but I can find the analogous you know experience in my life right and and for me it would be like right. going to to church it's korean church you know but i i think that we hear it a lot because it's true it's like the more specific something gets you know the more powerful its universality and i think that the power of a film comes from its insights and i think insight is only achievable through specificity you know it's really hard to have insight more generally because if you're telling a super general story like what can you examine what can you tease out and and i think there's something about the fact that you know what's that saying where there's only like <laughs> 40 different stories or story structures you know what makes a film different from another film mm -hmm is its specificities. And so that's how I want to think about my filmmaking. 
I think that there are different uh, mediums that deal with generalness better, like pop music. Like <laughs> pop music lyrics are so general to a certain extent. Yeah. But they can be so effective because of, you know, the performance of the vocals, because of the production. And, and what we do as an audience is hear the pop song and then because the lyrics are so general, we map it onto like a specific part of our lives and then we get an emotional reaction. Like I remember crying to Celine Dion's That's the Way It Is um, because I thought the song was about, you know, my breakup. Like I was like, it's about my breakup. Like this is this is what that is. So I think that there are many mediums that deal with generality better. Mm. Filmmaking, I think it's really hard. Speaking of pop music, I really want to commend your beautiful use of <laughs> of pop songs, especially Britney Spears' Sometime. And I feel like you speak about the generality of pop music. And I think it shows that if you're able to like place this really like heartfelt song about, I don't know, being innocent or I don't know, showing yourself fully to the love of your life and placing it into Howie's character and him performing it in that moment makes it such a potent scene. And I think it is also really important in that relationship between um, Howie and Charlie. And can you talk about like how that scene came about? Was that written into the script and how, how was it like filming that? In the screenplay, I believe Joel had written that the song was, will you still love me tomorrow? Which I believe is like, it's the Ronettes, but yes. uh, you know, an old school bop and a line from saving face. Oh God. Oh my God. You're totally right. Yeah. God, the, the synergy between the movies, but um, with Joel, we, we very quickly came to the conclusion that we should let Bowen choose the song, you know, oh. and Bowen gave us a list of songs because we, we also had to go through the, process of clearing it and so we didn't know like which one you know could clear he had a lot of carpenters on there <laughs> nice which just like <laughs> says so much about bone yang and i think it's just so sweet yeah. and then you know there are a few songs that you know were more poppy modern that i think could bring a sense of like humor to the piano karaoke rendition mm -hmm. and Bowen had Britney Spears sometimes and I looked up the lyrics, you know, I remember the song, you know, but I, I don't think I would know what the song was about unless I Googled the lyrics. And so I Googled the lyrics and looked them up and there was just something so Jane Bennett about it, you know, <laughs> um, Jane is not so obvious about her love and you know, she, I, I think, has a bit of a kind of self-confidence issue. And there was something about the lyrics to Britney Spears sometimes that felt so appropriate and felt really appropriate to the moment for Howie that it was very quickly my favorite idea. And we were very lucky to be able to get the clearance for it. And there's just something so fun about it. You know, yeah. I love that especially seeing it with an audience is super fun because you start to hear murmuring where people are like, is this, is it? And then they're like, Oh God, it is, you know, and then they start laughing and then they're into it. You know, it's really, really cute. 
And then it just, you know, like gets very poignant, you know, as kind of a a communication of a personality, you know, (laughs) from Howie to Charlie and and also a moment for Howie to be confident and in the spotlight. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of really kind of fun, beautiful stuff in there wrapped up in a kind of classic rom-com musical moment. Yeah. So I I was really happy with um, how that all came together. Yeah. Was it always the choice to have it replay during that boat chase scene? Like whichever song you guys chose for his karaoke, was it the plan to to have it come up again during that climactic scene? No, actually, that's a good question. (laughs) And I haven't been asked that question yet. The, The song wasn't written in the screenplay to have a you know, a reprise. Mm-hmm. Um, is it reprise or reprise? Eh, I think reprise. Anyway, but we had initially actually scored that moment, you know, the mm. kind of big rom-com moment where Charlie professes his feelings for Howie. And we had tried actually a bunch of, you know, classical strings, you know, that was kind of the first thought. And then our assistant editor, Matthew Buckley, he had the idea to try a needle drop, to try song. And I was skeptical at first, but he had tried a Beach Boys song that I thought was really fun, but kind of thematically not right. And then we went back to our music supervisors, Patrick Houlihan and Natalie Anderson, and and asked them, like, hey, like, could we try a song here? And like, what, what do you think could work? And they had the idea for Britney Spears sometimes. And it weirdly made so much sense, you know? And then for various reasons, we decided the best course of action was to get it covered. And we were so lucky to woo the band Muna into covering the it song. It is Muna. I was it's like, Muna. who is that? And I was like, it's Silk Chiffon. Okay, yes. I exactly. Get it. I get it's it. it's Muna and they're releasing the song, you know, when the movie drops and I just think it's Whoa. such it's such a banger. I love it so much and their vocals are so good. The production is so good. So yeah, I I think it's it's a really special part of our movie and and I'm really excited for people to to get to hear it. It's a real secret. Like people don't know about it yet. <laughs> oh, that's can great. we break the news? <laughs> I mean, Exclusive. I think, is this a scoop? <laughs> is it a scoop? I mean, to a certain extent, I mean, people will have seen it in the you know various screenings that we've done. Like it says it in the credits. It says it's mm. performed by Muna. But yes. Whenever this comes out, I think it'll be fine. Yeah, shattering our NDA to reveal Muna covered sometimes. How how were the screenings, Andrew? Because I know it is coming out next week on Hulu, so I'm very glad that you had in person screenings where you were able to like show it to people in person. And how how did they go, or how have they been? The screenings have been really wonderful. I I will say, again, kind of going back to this theme of comedies being really hard, watching a comedy with an audience is really nerve wracking because if they don't laugh, you know, you've 
you haven't done a good job, you know? And so every time I watch it with an audience, I'm waiting, like, are you going to laugh here? Are you going to laugh there? And it makes me so nervous. It just makes me so nervous. So I really hate watching it to a certain extent with an audience, unless it's like super receptive and they're like on board. It's it's really interesting to see how different audiences react to it. You know, an older audience versus a younger audience, you know, a queer audience versus a straight audience. But I've been really fortunate that, yeah, people have been responding to it really well. Um, it makes me really sad that it'll drop on Hulu and not have a bigger, you know, kind of fun theatrical release. But again, that's a little bit, you know, it was the deal that was made, you know, it was mm -hmm. always going to be a Hulu release, even before I was on board as a director. There was a secret hope that like, we would make it so good that, you know, Searchlight would be like, we're going to release it in theaters. But in a weird way, I think that maybe backfired on us where this is the first film that Searchlight has developed in-house to go to Hulu. It's not an acquisition like uh, Fresh or Summer of Soul. So I think they were really happy that this one came out really great. And they wanted to cement that relationship with Hulu by, you know, like having this be the first one. And so, you know, I'm very happy that it's getting this kind of platform because I think it means a lot of people will get a chance to see it, you know, and, and we are going to have a few special screenings. Like we have a screening in Provincetown and we have a screening at the Castro in San Francisco. And I hope that like people will have seen it and it becomes a little kind of Rocky horror picture show, like <laughs> sing along, you know, call back, like engage with the screen. That would be really uh, fun. I can definitely picture that happening. So many quotable lines. One that really made us feel seen was when Keegan <laughs> is worried about Luke not responding to his text for like a day. And Keegan says, if something happened to him, we were making a podcast. <laughs> I actually, I don't think we've talked about this in, in press yet either. I'm so glad that you love that line. It was actually a different line in the screenplay. It was... If something happened to him, we're going to make a podcast. It was going to be like a true crime <laughs> podcast was like the, the intention of the line. And our actor, Tomas Matos, uh, said it that way in rehearsal. And we couldn't stop laughing. Like it was just so funny because immediately your head goes to like, what podcast do these two characters have together? Like, what is their podcast going to be? And so uh, we, we asked Tomas to, to keep it that way. And it's one of my favorite moments. Um, we really wanted to record a Luke and Keegan podcast for the end credits. <laughs> and we never quite got around to it. But maybe something for the future, you know, promotional materials. I think they would be so funny. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a better line that way. Now I'm imagining it's a podcast where they each episode is just a different marissa tomei film <laughs> <laughs> it's I, also a fun podcast <laughs> i love that idea that is the stupidest best idea and then one where they sh just shit on ex machina yeah, <laughs> yeah. that also made me feel seen <laughs> it's it's a really fun moment like the actors had so much fun with it 
I, I also just think there's something so gay about Heads Up, um, that game. <laughs> but it's it's really funny, like the Heads Up game. It's making that like countdown sound yeah. for way too long. Like it's so long, but it it makes the moment funnier. Like again, I I'm talking about kind of the precision of comedy, and like that scene works better if you hear the countdown of the final 10 seconds of heads up, but you like, I think they're doing that scene for like 20, 30 seconds, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it also like makes me laugh because I'm like, Oh, you must've gotten Alicia Vikander so quickly, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah. It's a, it's a favorite moment on set. And I'm, I'm very thankful to, you know, the kind of commitment to the bit. Yeah. I mean, I love the main cast, but Luke and Keegan, the kind of like comic release hackers are extremely funny and they bring so much energy and like comic relief to the whole proceedings and everything. Yeah, I I love, you know, there's something about, again, like Jane Austen, you know, she wrote these really indelible characters and the way that Lydia and Kitty are kind of paired together us it just made so much sense like luke and keegan you know and <laughs> mary is you know a little bit the debbie downer like tries to ground everybody like torian miller is so good at that as max and i love that max and aaron played by margaret cho have kind of a cute you know relationship so like all of those little dynamics make the film feel you know, just more authentic and lived in. Mm. And yeah. I remember talking to Matt Rogers and Tomas about, you know, Luke and Keegan's friendship. And you could just see like, oh, they totally got it. You know, like there's a comfort with each other, a touchiness that, yeah, you know, I think a lot of queer people can kind of understand. And, you know, it's it's platonic. Maybe they hooked up once a long time ago, you know, <laughs> but yeah, like their podcast would be amazing. Yeah. And I think a Marissa Tomei one would be hilarious. Yeah. I really should check out some of this Jane Austen's work. Huh? She sounds like a, sounds like a real talented lady. <laughs> I think I probably relate to Max the most because the second that deer came on screen, Beautiful shots, by the way. I was oh, like, yep, yeah. Max is right. Deer ticks. Like, <laughs> everyone's getting Lyme disease. It's a thing on the island, you know? Like, it's a problem. Those deer are so cute. And then if you look at them up close, you're like, oh, you are covered. You are covered. Oh, it is no. disgusting. Mm -hmm. But, like, the deer, I was so obsessed with the deer. Like, I was like, we need a shot of the deer. <laughs> and, like, I sent our camera team out. I was like, please just find them wherever they are. But yeah, it's, you know, there's something about the flora and fauna of Fire Island that mm. is really beautiful and really like inspiring. Yeah. And I wanted to show that the kind of organic environment landscape with this very manicured, constructed society of queer people. Like, mm. I love that juxtaposition and wanted to try and find that beautiful tension between the two. Yeah, I love all the nature shots that you have in this. And it really feels like I was like watching. I was like, oh, that's a quintessential on moment. <laughs> like a, like the rooftop chat that Howie and Noah have at the beginning. I was like, oh, that's an on moment as well. 
Well, thank no. you. Thank you. I mean, it's funny. Like, there was one, like, super odd moment that got kind of <laughs> cut out of the movie where it's um Joel's character overhearing Charlie and Will talk about them. And Joel is behind the the door and he's kind of lit through the light from outside and and he's super wounded and hurt. And there used to be a shot right after that where he opens the door and his face is really hardened. Mm. And that was so satisfying to me. The problem was that in the edit, audiences didn't seem to get that kind of shift happening with just like the slide of a door and it never played in the way that I wanted it to. And, and mm. in this kind of brutal kind of edit for time, it got mm. cut out of the film and I'm still a little sad about it. And interestingly, there's a moment in Spawnite where I had the same thing mm. and it was the, it was the last cut out of the movie and it's, um, the coda of the film, it's after the big spa sequence at the end. And David walks back to the house with his dad and he checks on his mom and his mom is sleeping. And then there's a shot of him watching his dad asleep. And we used to have a reverse shot on David watching his dad sleep. And it's such a beautiful performance. And there's just something about that reverse shot that I really miss. And we cut out of the movie because it was almost too emotional. I remember watching it with my editor and we both we both made the decision, you know, that it felt like he was he was just so depressed and we didn't want that. But there was something about it that was just really special. So, you know, regrets, mm. you know, <laughs> it's a thing. But. I know why we made those choices. And so I'm not going to yeah. like dwell on them, but I definitely still remember. <laughs> well, look, if we're breaking our NDA anyway, just send us the shot and we'll leak it. <laughs> <laughs> Release the on cut. <laughs> I, would, I would love to. I would love to. Um, I know. I, I think it would be very funny if Twitter somehow like got behind that in a weird way. <laughs> I don't think film Twitter is going to, you know, demand it, but, but yeah, it's, it's a really, it's a really funny process, you know, like kind of honing a movie and it's very reflective of the moment that you're in, you know, like the mood, the headspace, you're always going to make different decisions if um, you look at it again at a later date. Sorry, we're all just messaging uh, off screen that we know you're, you're close to your out time. Yeah, no, totally. <laughs> but that was, I think that was a beautiful pausing point. I did that very inorganically, forgive me. <laughs> <laughs> totally cool. Thank you so much, Andrew, for coming on the podcast again to join us for your talk about your upcoming film. Fire Island comes out on June 3rd on Hulu. And I think it comes out on Disney Plus in international territories. I have no idea. That is correct. There will be some orgies on Disney Plus. Lovely. I can't wait for the Singapore Ratings Board to watch this film. <laughs> I can't wait. And then read their classification thing because they always write out what's the stuff that's like, why this got R21 or whatever. I can't wait to read that. <laughs> I'm excited. I'm excited for it. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you yeah, for thank having you for me. Good time. chatting.
Do you have any sneak peeks of what's next? Do you know what you're what you're moving on to in terms of features or TV or any? Yeah, um, unfortunately, nothing I can share. Oh, okay. But I'm working on two more queer movies. I've got a Korean American story that I am working on as a feature. And then, you know, just trying to have fun with my career. Um, I mentioned Ang Lee before, you know, I want to make my Hulk. I want to make my Crouching Tiger. (laughs) You know, I want to make my Brokeback Mountain. Like, the joke is that Fire Island is my version of Ang Lee's Sense and Sensibility. So, (laughs) so yeah. Is there anywhere that people can find you online that you would like to tell us? Yeah, um... I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Andrew on Films and Fire Island has our socials at Fire Island Movie. So, you know, please engage, chat with us and watch Alice Wu's Saving Face. It's so good. And I think, you know, just a beautiful example of queer Asian American rom-com that it really allowed us to to make something like Fire Island. I was really scared because I couldn't find it online, but then I realized it was on the Criterion channel right now. So oh, you can, very cool. check out Saving Face on the Criterion channel. And Tubi. <laughs> oh, and Tubi, yes. <laughs> Love you, Tubi. Thank you for listening to this episode of Deep Cut. Please rate and review because that helps us keep making the show. Be sure to subscribe to us where you listen to podcasts so you know when our next episode drops. Keep up with Deep Cut on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Letterboxd at Deep Cut Pod. Join us to talk about movies on our Discord server, to which you'll find a link in the description. Thank you to Justina Yam for our beautiful artwork. I'm Wilson. I'm Ben. I'm Eli. And I'm Andrew. Take care, and we're looking forward to talking about more movies with you next time.